Robots Radio presents... In 2001, director Chris Columbus brought J.K. Rowling's magical world to life. In 2019, we return to a familiar brand at cask strength. The film is Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The whiskey is Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 2001 film Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Or, for those of you in England, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That's right. I I still don't understand quite why they changed that name for American audiences. Like, did they not think Um, that that Philosopher sounded, like, marketable, sexy enough? They had to change it to Sorcerer? I think that people in England look down upon the pagan Americans, you know? <laughs> they're they're not really into philosophy. They're into, you know, more magic and witchcraft stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, crap. it's true, though. We we totally are. Brad, I'm really excited to jump into this movie. I think it's been... We're, we're overdue to get into the world of Harry Potter. And what we're going to be doing for the next few seasons on the podcast is we are going to review two Harry Potter films in each season of the podcast. So this season, you'll get The Sorcerer's Stone and The Chamber of Secrets. Brad, are you a big fan of Harry Potter? Bob, I'm a massive fan of Harry Potter. Uh, you know, we're coming off of one of my personal favorites, Star Wars, you know, episode five. And we're going right into one of my absolute favorite series, which is Harry Potter. Yeah, I'm also a big fan of Harry Potter. I was really into the books for, you know, a period of time when I was a kid, and the movies have always stuck with me. I have one of my sisters is a like a massive Harry Potter fan. She gets into all of the lore and the mythology behind it. So I was actually messaging her while we were watching this movie last night, asking follow-up questions on some things. I don't go quite that far down the rabbit hole, but this is one of my favorite film series. Yeah, Bob, you easily could have been texting me all those questions because I've probably read the book series four to five times altogether. I'm not quite as well-versed on the movies, so I'm excited to go back through them all again. But yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty massive Harry Potter fan. Well, Brad, hopefully drinking this barrel-proof whiskey today will help kind of clear up those sinuses a little bit. But before we get to that, I want to put you on the spot for a minute, and we're going to go into our favorite segment, which we call Brad Explains. This is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie we're reviewing. And since we know Brad is a massive Harry Potter fan, we're going to try to keep him to a 10-minute limit here on Brad Explains. But Brad, will you walk our listeners through the plot of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? I think I could actually sum up Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in four words, Bob. Uh Uh-oh. You're a wizard, Harry. You're a wizard, Harry. (laughs) And that's pretty much it. That's... That's not bad, actually. I, I That's what I'm saying, man. So Harry Potter and the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone is about a young boy named Harry Potter, who at the start of the movie is brought to his family by some very obviously magical beings. Uh, you got a giant dude and two old people, and they take Harry. <laughs> the old people are obviously family. magical. <laughs> I mean, they got pointy hats on, and the one is a cat, and then she's a woman. Yeah, but your distinguishing characteristic was like, they're obviously magical. They're old people. Yeah. So 
They take this young child to a pair of muggles' house, and muggles are non-magical people, for those of you muggles out there. And he's raised by them in complete ignorance of his magical heritage. And so on his 11th birthday, he begins to receive letters inviting him to attend the school of Hogwarts. Uh, It is a school of witchcraft and wizardry. It is the finest school in all the land, or so Rubius Haggard tells us. His family, however, hates magic and everything about it. And so they try to keep him from getting all these letters, and they end up moving to this lighthouse in the middle of the ocean that I'm not really sure how they got out to, but it looks really, really scary and dangerous. And so there, this giant, half-giant dude named Rubius Hagrid finds them, and he whisks Harry off to Hogwarts. While at Hogwarts, Harry slowly finds out more about his past. He finds out that his parents did not actually die in a car crash, as he was told by his muggle family, that they actually were killed by an evil wizard that most people refer to as he who must not be named. Uh, His real name is Lord Voldemort. Uh, So Harry goes off to Hogwarts, he learns a bunch of stuff, and he finds out that Voldemort is rising back to power, and he is trying to find ways to make himself invulnerable, to have forever life, Um, and he's chasing after this thing called the Sorcerer slash Philosopher's Stone, and that this stone gives you an elixir that allows you to live forever. And so Harry and his friends Ron and Hermione slowly chase down Voldemort throughout the year, and in the end they catch him. And Harry burns his face off with his hands in an event that is guaranteed (laughs) not to be emotionally traumatic for young 11-year-old Harry. Not at all. And there it is. Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Brad, thank you for that breakdown on Brad Explains. Yeah, man. there's There's a lot going on in this movie. But I think that the opening 30 to 40 minutes of this movie are perfect. And then it just kind of meanders around for a while. So I was kind of having a hard time nailing down because he just does so many different things at Hogwarts. I think you're on. I think we're on the exact same page with this movie, Brad. You know, I uh, I had to pause the movie at one point and I paused it at the 45 minute mark. And it was right as the sorting hat was going on to the first kid's head at Hogwarts. And I didn't realize, you know, that they they'd spent that much time getting you acclimated to the world of Hogwarts. You know, it takes a full 45 minutes to get to that point. But at the same time, I think the first 45 minutes of the film are just absolutely perfect. And then once they get to Hogwarts, I feel like the movie kind of loses its footing. And that middle section is really, really bloated. And parts of it feel rushed. Parts of it feel like it drags. And it doesn't have the same rhythm or momentum that they had in the first third. Yeah, and I will say the sad thing is, I think that as somebody who's a huge fan of the books, they actually do a phenomenal job of staying close to the source material. The, you know, the way that they go through the movie really does mirror how the book slowly wanders its way through Harry's first year at Hogwarts with Ron and Hermione. Um, unfortunately, I think this is a two and a half hour movie. And I think it might have done better if it was about two to two hours and 10 minutes. You know, cut Completely off, agree. Yeah, cut off about 20 to 30 minutes. And I think that you have a compelling movie that moves, you know, fast throughout all the things. But instead, yeah, you're right, Bob. We kind of meander our way through the middle portion. There's a little bit of excess, but it's still a great movie. You know, that first 30 to 40 minutes, it honestly might be one of the best movies I've ever seen. I mean, it is gripping from the very opening moments. Well, maybe we should walk through the movie then in kind of chronological order and and give our thoughts on the events as they unfold in the movie, because I think we're both in agreement that the first part of the movie was the most compelling to us. So the first thing you see in the movie, it fades up on 
Privet Drive, which is where the Dursleys live, and you find that Dumbledore and Hagrid and Professor McGonagall are dropping off this baby to the Dursleys after his parents have been murdered. And I really liked that the movie just jumped right in. You actually don't even get the opening title until after this sequence is done. And I noticed one really interesting thing about the movie, or about this sequence, and it was that all of the camera work had a very sort of like diffused fog filter look to it, and it looked visually different from the rest of the movie. And I'm wondering if Chris Columbus did that purposely because it's supposed to take place in a different time period, and because it's 10 years earlier, he actually films it in a way that was reminiscent of how he made movies like in the early 90s. I was I was watching it and I was like, oh, this reminds me a lot of the way that he shot Home Alone because there's all that sort of like all the all the street lamps have a very like diffused, soft feel to them. And the rest of the movie doesn't look like that at all. Yeah, I was I was actually going to make sure we brought up that Chris Columbus, you know, was the director of Home Alone. And I really think that he was the perfect choice to direct Harry Potter. Yep. Yeah, he directs the first two movies. And I really do think he does a, a phenomenal job. And you're right, that opening sequence, other than the awkward part where Dumbledore slowly pulls out all the lights and it takes forever to do. The entire opening sequence has this mystical, magical feel to it that I think it was just shot absolutely perfectly. And it's done in such a way that you don't, you know, if you went into Harry Potter and you didn't know anything about the books or the movies or the story or anything, you would still get a sense of gravity from the way that the actors are talking about this baby, from what's going on. I just think it's done brilliantly. I also think that Chris Columbus, you know, much like when we talked about Ron Howard last season, he's not a very subtle director. I don't think there's a lot of subtlety going on here. But again, I think that his directing style fits the material perfectly. This is a movie about discovering, you know, a whole new world. And he really captures that visual wonder in a way that not many filmmakers can do. I was on board for almost every decision he made as a director in this movie. Oh, are you doing magic? Let's see them. <clears throat> Sunshine, daisies, buttermellow. Turn this stupid fat rat yellow. Are you sure that's a real spell? Well, it's not very good, is it? Of course, I've only tried a few simple ones myself, but they've all worked for me. Example, Oculus Reparo. That's better, isn't it? Holy cricket, you're Harry Potter. I'm Hermione Granger. And you are? Um, Ron Weasley. Pleasure. Yeah, and I think this is something my wife and I were talking about because she's a huge Harry Potter fan as well. I think that the, one of the reasons that first 45 minutes is so intriguing is because you're seeing magic infiltrate the real world. You know, and as you read the books, it's easy to forget that the books are set in 90s London. Like, it's set mm -hmm. in the real world with real people who drive their cars to work and grumble about, you know, traffic and weather and all that. And so, like, there's some sense as Harry is slowly finding out that he's a wizard, you know, he causes the glass to disappear and his cousin falls into the snake cage and, you know, these owls start coming. And as you slowly see magic infiltrate his normal world, 
there's something about that interaction that makes it so magical and and which unfortunately makes it so that when you get to Hogwarts where you know magic is alive and real and it's absolutely everywhere around you it's almost a little bit less special and I, I think it kind of takes away from the coolness of the magic to be in a place where everybody just knows how to do magic and you know the kids are trying to turn their water into rum and that just everybody's able to do everything. There's something neat about that first 30 minutes where you're like, oh man, like magic is actually interacting with the real world. I think that's a really good point, Brad. And one thing that I noticed was that the early scenes in this movie, you know, up to and including when they get to Hogwarts, they kind of work because there's this, there's an element of things being kind of over the top about the way they're performed too. I'm thinking in particular of the one scene where the Dursley family is living in that lighthouse, as you said, and Hagrid breaks in and basically comes and, and kidnaps Harry away from them. And in the middle of this scene that's very tense because the Dursleys are terrified of Hagrid, you start to hear this like chomping sound and they look over and Dudley, who is like, you know, the fat cousin of Harry, is eating Harry's birthday cake. And I'm watching that going like, well, this is ridiculous. Like this kid wouldn't wouldn't divert his attention from what's going on to eat birthday cake. But it reminded me a lot of the way that the characters behave in a movie like Willy Wonka, because those characters don't necessarily follow logic either. But the reason that movie works so well is because everyone's bought into sort of the over the top nature of it. And I thought that that's what made some of those early scenes work really well. You know, the way that Uncle Vernon, it just grumbles and chews the scenery and the way Aunt Petunia is always fawning over Dudley. The performances are not subtle, but they work to establish what Harry's up against. Honestly, Bob, I think you're touching on what I think is one of the most important aspects of not just this movie, but the entire Harry Potter series, which is the fact that I personally think that these movies were absolutely perfectly cast. Uh, you know, especially having read the books, I don't know if I've ever seen a book adaptation where I have been so easily transported into what I already thought about characters by the mm -hmm. by the actors and actresses that I see on the screen. From Dumbledore down to Harry, I think that every single actor in this movie was perfectly chosen. You know, you look at the Dursleys, Aunt Petunia is absolutely perfect. She's this just crony of a woman that hates everything around her, hates magic, and you can just feel the bitterness in her soul at any time she speaks. I didn't take a lot of notes on the acting because there's so it's it's an ensemble movie, you know, and I know we wouldn't have time to break down a lot of people in particular for their performances. But one of the very few notes I took was about Aunt Petunia. And I wrote down, she is unexpectedly great in this movie. In that scene with Hagrid in the lighthouse, the camera just stays on her as she kind of recounts what happened when Harry's mom, Lily, got her letter from Hogwarts. And you start to see her feel emotion and she starts kind of holding back tears. You can see tears in her eyes as she's crying, talking about how Lily got a letter and she didn't. And instead of seeing the the kind of heartbreak behind it, what you see come up from Aunt Petunia is that sort of the response of hatred. I hate everything magic. I think your mom was a freak. And the performance was given like a level of, I don't know, gravitas that it didn't even necessarily need. And I thought it like just like you said, Brad, it demonstrated how perfectly cast this movie is that the actors would take their roles that seriously. 
Oh, for sure. The the level of intentionality, I think, in all of the actors and being faithful adaptations of what was in the book is absolutely amazing. Mr. Potter, our new celebrity. Tell me, what would I get if I added powdered root of asphodel to an infusion of wormwood? You don't know? Well, let's try again. Where, Mr. Potter, would you look if I asked you to find me a bezoar? I don't know, sir. And what is the difference between monkshood and wolfbane? I don't know, sir. Pity. Clearly, fame isn't everything, is it, Mr. Potter? You know, I I think like you look at Lord of the Rings and Lord of the Rings is one of the best trilogies of all time. But when you look at the script that they gave Aragorn, you know, he's a lot different than he is in the books. And I don't think it always works super well. But the script that they gave these actors and actresses is so just perfectly adapted from the books to represent who the characters are. And then the actors and actresses just take it and do a phenomenal job with it. I'm really glad that you brought up The Lord of the Rings because this film comes out the same year as The Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first Lord of the Rings film. And I think a lot of people couldn't help but compare the two series, even though they were intended for completely different audiences, even though it seems like The Lord of the Rings had more ambitions for getting Oscars and things like that. What I see a lot of people doing in their reviews for this movie is comparing it to The Lord of the Rings, especially at the end of the year. And kind of knocking Harry Potter for not being as serious as the Lord of the Rings or being more directed towards kids. And I think that's something we're going to get into as the episode goes on because it's kind of unavoidable. But the point I wanted to make was that I've never been a huge fan of the first Lord of the Rings film, The Fellowship of the Ring. And the reason I've never liked it that much is because I don't feel like it does a fantastic job of explaining the rules of the world that we're inhabiting in Middle Earth. A lot of language is used and you're just kind of expected to get on board and and figure out what the language means on your own. And what I really loved about Harry Potter is that at every turn, they make sure the audience understands what's going on. They explain their terminology. They make sure that you understand the stakes of what's happening with Voldemort. And I think this movie, in terms of setting up the universe, does a better job of that than The Lord of the Rings did. I don't know if I would totally agree with you there. I I personally find The Fellowship to be one of the best of the Lord of the Rings movies. I I think they do a great job of... (laughs) One of the best of the three. Well, you know. (laughs) It's definitely a top three Lord of the Rings movie. Well, if you include other Lord of the Rings movies. (laughs) Well, that's true. (laughs) But anyways, yeah, I think that you're on to something when you point out how well they set up the world. And I like that Chris Columbus, you know, oftentimes we'll talk on this podcast about how some directors will tell you things and not show you things, or they show too much and they don't tell you enough at all. And I think that Chris Columbus honestly just kind of takes a shotgun approach of, I'm going to show you and tell you everything that you need to know in this movie. And for a world-building, fun kids movie like this first Harry Potter film... It works perfectly. You you get a blast of information that's being shown to you and told to you, and you know you learn everything you need to know. And I guess I'm thinking of an example like from the very start of the movie. You know you don't have any dialogue, and yet right away you see magic working in that Dumbledore uses his deluminator to take out the lights on the on the street. 
And then McGonagall turns from a cat into a human being. So you immediately are shown, hey, this is a magical world. And you haven't even heard a line of dialogue yet. What I really love about the script is that they know exactly when to keep really subtle details from the books included in the movie because it really helped me get into the world of the movie more. I'm thinking in particular of the first time that we see an owl deliver a piece of mail through the Dursley's little slot, and it's addressed to, you know, Mr. H. Potter, the cupboard under the stairs. And I just, I love that detail so much because it has this element of kind of whimsy, but it also helps you understand that these magic people, they know exactly where Harry's located. It's not just in the Dursley's household. It's the cupboard under the stairs. And including that little detail, it wasn't necessary to the plot, but I felt it added so much to the sort of mystique that was surrounding the wizarding world at that point in the movie. All right, so Brad, I think that we are just getting into talking about this film. I'm sure that we're going to get into some of our gripes and our nitpicks, and we'll probably also single out some performances. But before we get to all that, let's take a break, let's clear your sinuses, and let's try this Elijah Craig barrel proof. Let's get to it. Right, so today we're checking out Elijah Craig Barrel Proof. Now, last season we had regular Elijah Craig, or as it's called on the bottle, Elijah Craig Small Batch. This is a barrel proof whiskey that was sent to us by our Instagram friend, The Whiskey Corner. That's the underscore whiskey underscore corner. So we want to say, first of all, thank you for the sample. I am super excited to try this, Brad, because I really liked Elijah Craig the first time we had it. You were not as big of a fan, if I recall correctly. Yeah, Elijah Craig, from what I remember, it just didn't pack quite the punch I was hoping for, but I doubt that I will have that issue with this here uh, barrel <laughs> strength. Well, what I remember about the first go-around was that you you didn't care for the sort of smokiness that it had to it, and I'm really excited to see what you think of this, because that was really before we got into drinking a lot of scotch, too, and now that we've had some super heavily peated scotches, I wonder if you're... You know, if your palate is kind of adjusted more to that smoky nature. Yeah, I guess we'll see. It's, you know, even just pouring this whiskey out, it just has a beautiful caramely color to it that immediately made me attracted to what we're about to drink. So, Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this Elijah Craig barrel proof? Alcohol. Yeah, definitely. Lots of alcohol. I had to let mine kind of sit and mellow for a couple minutes. And that's, I mean... That's to be expected with barrel-proof whiskeys. The first thing you're going to get jumping out at you is that ethanol. Uh, but once I kind of let it mellow, I got a lot of caramel and I got a lot of oak. A, a lot more oak than I'm used to getting on the nose of a whiskey. I was like, oh man, this this smells like a barrel. Yeah, you you really notice that you know when you water it down to get it to normal 100 or 110 proof, you do lose some of that oakiness and you're not losing it on this bottle. No, you're not. Right before I put it up to my lips, though, I'm noticing a blast of maple syrup. And not like the stuff you buy from the grocery store that's flavored maple-flavored syrup. I'm talking like actual authentic maple. I don't know if you're quite getting that, Brad, but it is like jumping off this thing for me. Oh, yeah. For those of you who don't know, Ohio actually has some really great maple syrup 
production facilities. And so having grown up with some good maple syrup, I would agree with you. You really get that flavor kind of coming at you. Now, I will say I'm not really getting a lot of like complexity on this nose. I don't quite know what to make of it. It does smell a lot like alcohol and it has kind of standard bourbon notes to it with nothing much underneath that. So I think I'm only going to give this a six. I'm cautiously optimistic about what it's going to taste like. Yeah, Bob, I'm right there with you. I was actually going to give it a six and a half on the nose. I'm curious what's to come, but like you said, there doesn't seem to be a ton of complexity here. Bob, I always get so nervous when I drink barrel strength whiskeys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that last one did not go over very well. No, it's just, it's hard because the alcohol content is so high that if you drink it wrong, it like legitimately burns your throat. Yeah, it'll mess you up. I feel like it kind of ruins the rest of the experience for me. Well, let's give it a sip, Brad, and find out. Whoo, buddy. All right, Brad, let's hear your thoughts because we just tried bullet barrel strength a few weeks ago and that one did not go over very well with Brad. So I'm really excited to hear what you think of this barrel proof. This one is really good. I From the very start, there's a lot of viscosity to this one, to use Bob's favorite term. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It's a very thick whiskey and I think I really enjoy that. You know, that first touch on your, your tongue, I get a lot of that maple syrup. Um, which honestly is helped by how viscous it is. There's caramel on the tongue, and I don't get hit by the powerful barrel strength, you know, ethanol content until the back end when I'm finishing. So I'm honestly able to spend some time with the flavor before I get punched in the throat with the power of that, you know, 125 proof. Yeah, this doesn't have the harsh notes that the bullet did. It's really sweet up front, and you do get, I mean, you do get the the sort of tingle of the alcohol, but it's it's mixed with a really nice layer of spice, so it doesn't it doesn't burn your taste buds at any point. When I went to swallow, I did get like a blast of what kind of reminded me of like sawdust. Th- those oaky notes are present all the way through from the nose through to the finish. But there was a nice burn, like you said, Brad. It didn't burn my throat or anything like that. I really enjoyed the flavor of this. And like you said, it's something you can sit with for a while and not feel like you have to swallow immediately to kind of get out of your mouth. I'm going to give this a seven on the taste. Yeah, I'm going to give it actually an eight. I really like the taste on this, and it's not overpowered by the ethanol. This bottle is turning me around on barrel strength whiskeys. Well, then let's talk about the finish, because this is actually where this whiskey shines the most for me. We really both didn't care for the finish on the bullet barrel strength. It was really harsh. It stayed in our chest for a long time. This one has a nice burn to it. It lets you know that it's there. But I didn't find that it had that sort of like heartburn inducing burn in my chest. Did you feel did you feel the same about the finish, Brad? Yeah, I mean, it's a hell of a Kentucky hug. Don't get me wrong. But you are correct in saying it doesn't overpower you. And I really like that. So I'm going to give it an eight and a half on the finish. I really like the finish on this. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven on the finish. It's it's really good and it doesn't destroy you, but it's still a really powerful alcohol finish that isn't necessarily my favorite because I wish I had more of the flavor that I had on my tongue as I've you know finished off this whiskey. Overall, though, and this is getting into our balance score, I didn't feel like any one part of this stood out from the others. The the nose was a little more subtle than the flavor ended up being, but I thought that was good because it didn't singe my nostrils when I was trying to, to give it a little sniff. So I'm actually going to give this an eight on the balance. I think this is a really well-balanced whiskey. 
Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half for the same reasons. I think it's really well balanced. I wish you got a little more on the nose, but like you said, you know, when you get a little less on the nose and then more on the flavor, it's almost like a, a good surprise of like, oh man, there's more there than I thought there was. All right, so this is where I think our scores are going to get interesting because we both really like this whiskey. But as we know, barrel proof whiskeys tend to be a little more expensive. I think that the bullet barrel strength was like in the $49 range. Elijah Craig, in general, is a bit more expensive than Bullet. So you can expect that this would be a little bit pricier than that. This bottle of Elijah Craig Barrel Proof in the state of Ohio will set you back $59.99. So it's a $60 bottle of whiskey, which is not inexpensive. This is, you know, this is kind of a special occasion whiskey. Brad, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the price point. Do you think this is a fair price point? And what kind of a value score would you give it? Man, that's that's really tough. $60 is quite a bit of money. I I personally would pay up to about $45 for something like this. May maybe 50. There is you can tell that this is a very well-made whiskey. So I do appreciate that about it. I think that it's a little bit overpriced. So I'm going to give it a four and a half on the value category. I also think it's a little bit overpriced. I think knowing the market like we do, though, and knowing that barrel-proof whiskeys are just generally more expensive, I think I can justify it a little bit more in this case because it is such a good whiskey. I don't think that I would go out and buy it on a continual basis. I, I do think that it's overpriced, but it is a really good whiskey. And if you're in the market for a barrel-proof, I think I would point somebody to this at $60, probably before I would even point them to the bullet at $50. I, don't, I might be alone on that, but... I would I would rather drop the extra $10. So I'm going to give it a six on the value. No, I would agree with you, Bob. I would point people to this before I'd point people to that bullet. So that's bringing me out to a 35 and a half out of 50. Brad, what's your final score on this? My final score is a 33.5. All right. So that brings us out to a 69 out of 100 or a 34.5 out of 50. This is a really good whiskey. I think that it, it's definitely worthy of being included in that upper third tier the price point is a little much for me, and I think that's what brings it down a little bit. Brad, do you have any final thoughts on this whiskey? You know, I, I keep taking sips of it, and I really do keep coming back to how thick of a whiskey it is. You know, as I swallow it, I can feel it coating my entire mouth, and that coating brings me the flavor up to a minute after I've drank. I, I actually really like this whiskey a lot. All right, so there it is. Elijah Craig Barrel Proof is a winner in both of our books. Brad, would you recommend? 100%. All right, what do you say we get back into talking about Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone? guys that was elijah craig barrel strength a whiskey that bob and i were both very impressed with and now it's time for our favorite of all segments hot takes hot takes we're getting back into our hot takes this week this is the segment where we find one star reviews of our current movie and we decide whether or not they have any merit spoiler alert they do not they do not our first hot take of the day comes from imdb user jay posenell and Jay Posenell's review is titled, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I 
Why all the glowing comments? This is one lame movie. Haven't we seen these types of special effects enough already? The acting was lame, the story was lame, the pace was slow, the scenes overly long and trite. I was bored out of my mind. I don't really think that most children would honestly like the movie very much, except for the fact that it's been hyped so much. They probably have collected all the toys and such that go along with the marketing of this drivel. It looks to me that the overly positive reviews are from those that are part of the sheep syndrome that is sweeping the nation. Join the flock or be an outcast. Sorry, I'm not so easily led. This is one lame movie. I feel so bad for Richard Harris, one of his last roles, and it had to be this weak character. He's probably had worse roles, but this certainly is not one to be proud of. Big beards do not make a character wise or strong. Alan Rickman's character was by far the best played one. I'll rate this 1 out of 10 because of the pretentiousness of the whole thing. Sorry, kids. This one does suck. One star. Bob, can I... I I think that he has a few points that, yes, some of these scenes do drag on a little bit. And I think like we already commented on, there's a little bit of fat on this movie that you could probably could have trimmed off. But to say that, you know, poor Richard Harris, that this had to be one of his last roles. Like, come on, man. Dumbledore's up there with like Gandalf is one of the greatest wizarding roles of all time. So I know I'm not going to read this whole review, but I was kind of looking through one star reviews of my own. <laughs> and there's one called... Why don't they just take a dump on a film strip? (laughs) Those are the ones I take seriously. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So our second hot take for the day comes from Omega 101. And their review is called Dismal, Contrived, Ripoff, and Just Plain Dumb. Terribly contrived and juvenile. From the outset, it treats viewers like they were little children. The problem is most children won't realize how terrible it is because they haven't the breadth of experience to notice how contrived and unoriginal the plot is. I don't blame Columbus, though. J.K. Rowling has created a cliched story full of unoriginality and character shallowness. The fact that Harry Potter seems to be everybody's favorite and is virtually invincible in the film just makes you feel sick at how predictable this film is. And the ending, my gosh, what a terrible ending. Star Wars was bad enough with their super proton torpedoes that destroy whole motherships, and stupid Darth Vader never learned the lesson of having such weaknesses from his experience in The Phantom Menace. But Harry Potter tops it with its ludicrous ending, whose sole explanation is a mother's love? Ridiculous! Go see a real movie from the original genius of J.R.R. Tolkien, The Lord of the Rings. One star. (laughs) You know what's funny, Bob? As you were reading that review in my head, I was like, oh, this sounds like somebody who like, you know, there's obviously a lot of uh, controversy about the new Star Wars that have all come out. But this sounds like somebody who was like, yeah, well, guess what? I didn't like the prequels. I don't like the new ones. I never even liked the original Star Wars. So there, they all suck. And then you started reading about Star Wars and how much he hated the original one. And I was like, oh, yeah, there you go. This guy's an idiot. Yep. That's exactly the kind of person we're dealing with here. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, as he was talking about the contrived nature of the final plot, like, oh, what was it that defeated Quirrell and Voldemort? Your mother's love. I I personally think that that is one of the most beautiful aspects of these movies is that, you know, if you've read like C.S. Lewis, uh, you know, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there's a point in that book where they talk about how there's a deeper magic that is like the foundation for all other magic that is in this world. 
and that there's rules to that magic that are are almost worldviews about how the world works. And I think you get that sense in Harry Potter that you could know the most powerful spells in the world. You know, later on, we'll talk about the unforgivable curses. You get a sense in this movie that you could know those spells, and yet there are certain things about love and caring for family that are are more powerful in a tangible way than anything else. You know, it's one thing to say, oh, her love was great for you. It's another thing to say, yeah, her love literally kept you from dying. Like there's something that about that, that J.K. Rowling just gives you a beautiful sense that love isn't just a feeling. It has actual staying power that that can be tangibly felt in the world. I think that's one of my absolute favorite aspects of the entire Harry Potter series. All right. So I agree with absolutely everything you said. But How, you're about to disagree with me. No, I'm going to say I will say this, though. I think that this particular story in the Harry Potter saga, that this chapter of the whole tale uses that excuse of love conquers all in the most kind of contrived way. I don't necessarily disagree with that guy in saying that the ending of this movie is probably the most problematic of the endings of all the movies. When you get to like the fourth and the fifth and all those where, where Harry's actually having like spell battles with Voldemort, you you understand that because of the love that Harry has in him and the, and the community of people around him, that his magic is going to be stronger than Voldemort's magic is. I just think in this movie, they kind of use it as a cop out. Like my big complaint with the end of the movie is that Harry just kind of touches the guy and he falls apart. And then the explanation at the end of the film is like, oh, that's because your mom loved you so much that the love lives literally in your skin. And I'm like, what? Like, this wasn't established at any point in the movie. It just seemed like a really easy way to get out of that situation. And I think that the overall what you're saying, Brad, the overall sentiment still rings true. And it it still works, but it works to the least extent that it does in any of the movies. I think J.K. Rowling got better at applying that sentiment in better ways as the series progressed. Well, I guess I'd say this. As somebody who's like read the books extensively, I think the reason it bothers me less is because they do a better job of explaining it in the books. You know, from the very start of the book, you know, Dumbledore talks about a protection that they could find nowhere else by giving him, you know, to the Dursleys. And so I think that the books do a better job of explaining it. So you're not just hit with it as a convenient cop out at the end. But I would agree with you. The the movie, it does feel like, well, how did you defeat him? 11 year old preteen Harry Potter. Well, I touched him in the face, I guess. Like, there, yeah, there is a sense of contrived, you know, nature to it. But for me, I, I think it's okay because I've read the books enough that I know the lore behind it that for me, it makes it more powerful. Yeah, I totally understand that. So this movie came out 18 years ago now, Brad. And I have to say, as I was watching the movie this time around, I was really blown away by the set decoration and the intricate, ornate detail in all of these sets. Even the ones that you could kind of tell were on a soundstage, like the exteriors at Diagon Alley, they still look incredible, and they have such a level of detail that you don't typically see in movies like this. I thought the sets held up really, really well. Did you find anything else in this movie that you felt has held up really well over the last two decades? 
Yeah, weirdly enough, I think certain aspects of the CGI has actually held up pretty well. Like, the centaur, you can very clearly tell, is fake, but it doesn't look quite as terrible as other movies that have come out around this time. And I I think that there is a sense of realism to the movie where you see magic come to life. Now, obviously, it doesn't compare with, I would say, probably the fifth movie on is when they really upped their CGI game as far as, you know, how spells are cast and what they look like and so on and so forth. But there's something charming. I don't know. This, out of all the movies, this one is most clearly meant for kids. And I'm kind of okay with some of this, the aged CGI looks. Yeah, I think that most of the computer animated stuff does hold up pretty well, at least to serve the purpose that it needs to serve. You know, like when they open the book in the library and it kind of sprouts a face and starts screaming like that doesn't Mm -hmm. have to look incredible. And it serves the purpose it's supposed to serve. I think the only characters in the movie that look really, really bad are when they replace a human with a fully CGI puppet version of the human. Like when Harry's riding on top of the troll, stuff like that. You can tell this looks like. 2001 video game graphics it's it's not good yeah but again like none of that is really integral to the plot in any way so it it didn't affect me negatively hmm difficult very difficult plenty of courage i see not a bad mind either there's talent oh yes and a thirst to prove yourself but where to put you Not Slytherin, not Slytherin. Not Slytherin, eh? Are you sure? You could be great, you know. It's all here in your head. And Slytherin will help you on the way to greatness. There's no doubt about that. No? Well, if you're sure, better be Gryffindor! Yeah, I would agree with you. I, I think overall the the cinematography of this movie is beautiful and it, it helps mask some of the CGI flaws. So it, it doesn't bother me too much. And I would agree with what you said earlier, Bob. The set design on this movie is great. You know, throughout the movies, you kind of see that there's different versions of Hogwarts that you see, which I think is kind of fun. It's, you know, this idea that, you know, Hogwarts itself is shifting and changing and magical. But this is probably my favorite version of Hogwarts. You know, those those giant, not that it's real, but the giant crane shots of Hogwarts are just spectacular. It, it's a beautiful, beautiful castle. And it really gives a sense of oldness to Hogwarts and importance that you wouldn't get otherwise. Oh, yeah. The cinematography in this movie is incredible. But it's the same cinematographer that just a few years ago did Mad Max Fury Road, which is a movie that we talk about even today in terms of like, the level of greatness in that cinematography. And here he is applying his talents to Harry Potter. And I was blown away at some of the shots and I had forgotten about the level of color and depth of field. You know, there's that one wonderful shot where it starts from an aerial view, looking down on the boats that are going over to Hogwarts for the sorting ceremony. And then it slowly tilts up to reveal where the boats are going and you see Hogwarts for the first time. That shot of the boats going into Hogwarts is one of my favorite shots in any movie of all time. It's just such a beautifully composed shot. And I think that this movie is just full of wonderful little moments like that. Yeah, it really is. And I think one of the other aspects of this movie that really brings it to life is the musical score. 
you know, and it's no surprise to me that we have the master of music himself, John Williams, composing this score. Brad, if I'm being honest with you, I'm probably going to make you upset when I say this. Harry Potter may not be the most recognizable of all of John Williams scores. I think, you know, Star Wars and probably Indiana Jones are still more recognizable to people. But you're getting John Williams at a point of his career, which I guess you could kind of call like late era John Williams. He's composed for so many movies, and he knows exactly how to bring motifs in and out of scenes. He knows how to plant little sort of breadcrumbs that are going to pay off later. I think that this movie might be my favorite John Williams score in terms of how he sort of layers things. It's it's a much more complex score than what you got in something like A New Hope. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. There's There's a complexity to it that helps you understand the complexity that there is in the magical world that you know not only are you young you know teenagers and preteens trying to learn magic and find your way in the world but you're also dealing with normal things like hey does this girl or boy like me and there's something about the music that like you said there's so much layering to it that you get the sense that this world is deep and meaningful and all you had to do was listening to the opening theme All right. So, Brad, we've both touched on some things that we really like about this movie, but I do think that we both find it a little bit flawed. And I want to hear your thoughts on what didn't work for you from this movie. Maybe that got improved on with later Harry Potter films. Um, But but what are some things that stuck out to you this time as maybe needing improvement? Yeah, I mean, we already kind of talked about it. I think that there's just a little bit too much on this movie. You know, they really tried to take on every aspect of the book and find a way to cram it into this film. And I think that you find with the later movies, they streamline them a little bit more. And, you know, are you going to hear some fans gripe and complain that they didn't see their favorite niche scene in, you know, uh, a later film? Sure, maybe. But I think they do a much better job of streamlining the books into getting just what you need to see on the screen. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. There there are whole scenes in this movie that I'm not sure really needed to happen to advance the plot along. In particular, the whole scene in the Forbidden Forest. Like, it's cool to see what the Forbidden Forest is about, but everything that happens in that scene could have been told in either a much shorter scene or just in exposition somewhere else. They could have talked about unicorns having their blood drained in a different scene. You know, when the uh, when the centaur shows up and starts talking with Harry, he doesn't tell us anything we already don't know. He literally just tells him, like, you're in great danger. There's something bad out here. All right. See you later, Harry. And we spend probably six, seven minutes setting that whole thing up when it it was absolutely unnecessary. Yeah. And also say from a storytelling perspective, this is one of the areas where I think, you know, JK was finding her grounding. But I'm just like, okay, it is very unbelievable that they would be sending a bunch of 11 year old kids into a forest where they know something is trying to eat unicorns. Like, if they know all they know about, you know, what happens when you drink unicorn blood, I doubt that the, you know, their punishment would be, hey, let's send these 11-year-old kids out into the forest where something's trying to eat a freaking unicorn. You know, and I'm going to say something that's super unpopular, but from just a, a strictly plot standpoint, none of the Quidditch stuff actually does anything to advance the plot of the movie. And I love oh, yeah. watching I love watching the Quidditch scenes, but when you take into account all of the practices, all of the breakdowns of how the game is played, and then the actual sequence of the game itself. We're talking about probably over 20 minutes of the film that actually don't do anything to further the story that's trying to be told. 
Yeah, I, I'll quibble with you a little bit there just by saying that without those 20 minutes, I don't think you have the impact of Quidditch in later movies, you know, because Quidditch plays a pretty large role in Harry's life. It's one of the things that he's naturally successful at. So I think that they kind of paid the tax, if you will, in this movie to set up the exposition so that in later movies, you already knew what Quidditch was when you got into it. But I would agree with you, if you just confine it to this film, Quidditch does not play any major story role. Okay, so Brad, we've talked for a while about this film. I want to hear your final thoughts on the movie. The good, the bad, what you loved about it, what you didn't love about it, and can you give it a final score? Yeah, I think I said from the very start, I think that the casting in this movie and the subsequent movies is absolutely perfect. They have actors and actresses who really care about their parts, and they bring the Harry Potter world to life in a way that I never thought would be possible. So I I think that this movie hits on a lot of different ways, mainly because they just cast it so daggone well. You know, we've talked about it. There's some extraneous scenes that just make the movie drag on a little bit. But overall, I, you know, this this viewing of the Sorcerer's Stone, I was actually more impressed with it than I have been in the past. You know, in the past, I might have given this a seven to a seven and a half. I'm actually going to give this an eight out of ten. I really love this movie. And I think if you cut it down by about 30 minutes, I'd probably be giving it like a nine out of ten. Yeah, Brad, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think that the main flaw of this movie in particular is that you don't really get to the conflict of the movie until too far into the film. It spends so much time setting things up. And like you said, it kind of pays the tax for the rest of the series to cash in on. But we don't really understand a lot about what's going on with the Sorcerer's Stone. And then by the time the Sorcerer's Stone becomes an important plot point, everything feels rushed to get to the end of the movie. So... For me, where this movie really succeeds is in the first half, where it's kind of establishing the world, because everything else seems a little bit forgettable, if I'm being honest. The conflict with Professor Quirrell, the resolution of how Voldemort gets defeated, it it doesn't really have as much of an impact as the rest of the film, where the relationships are built. And that's why I think the very end of the movie, when Dumbledore awards all the points to Gryffindor House, and he finally gives us 10 points to Neville... Like, I actually got a little teary-eyed at the end of the movie because that's where Harry Potter really succeeds, is in establishing this group of friends, this community that Harry finally has built around him. And when the movie's focusing on that, it succeeds much more than it does when it's delving into the story with Voldemort. I'm also going to give this movie an 8 out of 10. Like Brad said, it's, it's 25 minutes too long, and it's a solid 25 minutes too long. And if it was shorter, I think we'd be talking about it as a potential 10 out of 10 candidate. But just like Brad, I was really blown away this viewing more than I have been in the past. And I think that the Sorcerer's Stone is really a great setup for the rest of the series. So I'm going to give it an eight out of ten. Yeah, and I I think you you keyed in on a point that we probably should spend a little more time on, that this isn't just a solo movie. It's not here by itself. It is a part of a series. And I think that one of the reasons I gave it an eight out of ten is because of what you just said, Bob, it really sets the stage for the Harry Potter universe in a perfect way. I I can't imagine a better effort, you know, than what Chris Columbus gave in introducing us to the world of Harry Potter. I I was very, very impressed with this movie. 
But we want to know what you think. So please get on social media. You can find us at Film Whiskey on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Or you can give us a call. Let us know what you have to think about the wonderful world of Harry Potter. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, it's 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be returning to the world of Harry Potter as we look at Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.